Well, this, of course, is Mother's Day, and uh, at least in the Presbyterian Church, uh, we also celebrate this as the festival of the Christian home. And uh, so I thought it would be appropriate to spend some time this morning with a family story. Uh, our story comes from the book of Ruth. And in case you didn't take that Old Testament 101 class, um, this is a family story. It's, uh, it's a story that is 3,000 years old. So it's an old story. And I believe it to be a true story because it is the story of a family that is in trouble. This is a middle-class family, and they have hit hard times. It's a story about a family that has to travel to a strange land, and about a father who dies unexpectedly, leaving behind a widow and two sons ill-prepared for. Two sons who wind up marrying women of a different religion and a different race. And so it's about a mother-in-law who doesn't really understand her daughters-in-law and yet finds herself yoked to them in grief. So it's a story about a family that is beset with problems. There are bills to pay and, and there are children who don't know, uh, who don't do exactly what their parents tell them to do, and there are mother and daughter-in-law tensions. In other words, it's a story about a family not unlike yours or mine, ordinary people. Or maybe I am doing a disservice to your family. Uh, it is Mother's Day, and uh, though we can't be together necessarily under the same roof this Mother's Day, many of us will be making contacts with our mothers, and maybe your family uh, doesn't have any problems, in which case yours is an extraordinary family. But our story this morning, the story of Ruth, is about an ordinary family, about a family where it is tough uh, to figure out how to love one another. It's about an ordinary family. The story is set during the time when the judges ruled over Israel, a time when, according to the last verse of the book of Judges, there was chaos in the land, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. There was violence in the streets. There was political intrigue. There was corruption in high places. Wait, let me just check again the date of this story. Um, and as if the moral chaos were not enough, there is an economic disaster. So according to the first verse of the book of Ruth, there was a famine in the land, a famine. And so we can envision uh, children walking around with bloated bellies and high unemployment rates and people waiting in lines for boxes of food. It was hard times. And in the midst of this, Naomi and her husband decide to leave their modest home there in Bethlehem and to travel out to the wilds of Moab. They hear that somehow things are better over in Moab. You ever been to Moab? It's a, it's a rough sort of out-of-the-way place. Um, 
you don't go to Moab unless you are pretty miserable where you already are. Back in the book of Genesis, when Abraham and his brother Lot were parting company, we are told that Lot went to live in the wilderness. He lived there in a cave with his two daughters. And at one point, those two daughters looked at their father and uh, they said to themselves, you know, he's getting old and we ourselves are no longer spring chickens and we have no prospects for husbands. And so they get their father drunk. It's right there in the book of Genesis. And they go into their father and nine months later, they each bear a son. And one of those sons is named Moab. And according to Genesis, he is the father of the Moabites. It's another good biblical family story. And some of you parents I know are now thinking, this is an inappropriate Bible study for my children. And we'll try to make sure that we don't teach it at Vacation Bible School this year. Um, Some of you may be thinking, this is an inappropriate story for my mother. I don't know where you think your mother has been all these years, Uh, But I'm just trying to explain that life in Moab was no picnic. You had to be really desperate to think that you could improve your lot by moving to Moab. But Naomi and her husband, they are desperate. They are hungry. And so they pack up their limited belongings in a small U-Haul and they take their two sons and they make the move. And wouldn't you know it, No sooner have they unpacked their bags than their boys are dating Moabite girls. And it's complicated now because to make matters worse, Naomi is now a single parent. Her husband dies as soon as they get to Moab. And how she wishes that her husband were there to help her in this time of difficulty, to help her with this problem of her boy's infatuation with these Moabite girls. Why is it, she thinks to herself, that the foreign women always look more attractive? Is this some kind of male thing? But Naomi is a single parent, and she's just trying to do uh, what many single parents do. She's trying to get through the best that she can. So Naomi says to her oldest son, Melon, Malon, it's, it's not that what's-her-name is a bad person. Her name is Ruth, mother. Okay, all right. It's not that Ruth is a bad person. It's just that, well, she hasn't had some of the advantages that you have. And they don't have the same value system as we do. She's just a little, she's just a little Moabite, is that what you're trying to say, mother? Well, Naomi gets about as far with this line of reasoning as perhaps some of you have with your son or your daughter. Besides, where is Malon going to find a nice, respectable, church-going girl here in Moab? And so just a few months later, Naomi has not one, but two Moabite daughters-in-law. And she tries to make the best of it. Um, Dear, 
She says to Ruth one day, you're so pretty. You're so naturally pretty. Don't you think you could get along with a tad less eyeliner? She turns to her other daughter-in-law and says, you know, a low-cut Victoria's Secret blouse is okay, but, but for church, really? It's tough being a mother-in-law. But it's about to get even tougher because now both of Naomi's sons die. And Naomi is left alone with these two daughters-in-law that she barely knows, let alone likes. And so, after the death of her two sons, Naomi says to them, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem, to my own people. I'm a single woman with no marketable skills, no prospects for marriage. I have no future here. I can't help you. You're both young. You're attractive in a Moabite sort of way. Go and help yourselves. You don't need a dependent old lady like me hanging around. Go back with your own people here in Moab. And what her daughter-in-laws say surprises Naomi. You are our people, they say. We will go with you. And Naomi tries to talk some sense into them. Look, you are women. You are unmarried women. We live in a patriarchal society. Even though in the year 1000 BC, we don't know we're living in a patriarchal society until very bright, intelligent women come along thousands of years later to tell us that. But you are poor. You are single. You are vulnerable. You're Moabites. Why don't you just... Stay here where there at least is some hope for you. And one of them, Orpah, decides that that is what she will do. But Ruth clung to Naomi. It's the same word that is used in Genesis when it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Ruth clung to Naomi, refused to leave the old woman. So Naomi said to her, you know, even if I should get a husband up in Bethlehem, I'm long past the childbearing years. I can't have any other sons for you to marry. But Ruth counters Naomi's pleadings with pleadings of her own. In one of the most beloved speeches in all of the Bible, she says to her, Entreat me not to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. I cannot tell you how many couples in premarital counseling, when we get to the time of planning the wedding service and are picking the scripture reading, one of them says to me, well, what about that verse, you know, something like, whither thou goest, I will go, something like that. And I just smile and say to them, you mean the passage where Ruth says that to her mother-in-law, that one? And there is this long pause. So, Ruth, a Moabite, a single woman, 
it appears that she has just thrown her life away for no one more important than her mother-in-law. You remember back in Genesis when Abraham and Sarah were told to pack up their things and to go to a strange land, God promised them, I will bless you. I will be there with you. I will make something of you. But Ruth ventures forth with no promises like that at all. She links her life to Naomi with nothing more substantial than the affection of a young woman for an older one. And it's a story, therefore, about these strange yokings, these unusual linkages and clingings that occur in an ordinary family. Yokings and clingings made all the more strange, I think, because you and I live in a culture that really doesn't understand such claimings and clingings. We have trouble understanding this story, not only because it is 3,000 years old, but because we have constructed a society which acts as though it were possible to be a fully human being with no attachments whatsoever, with no claims, no clinging between people. For us today, the individual, the self-sufficient, liberated, autonomous, standalone individual is everything. And we think that what makes America and freedom great is this. This is what it is all about. Hence, protesters who invade the state's, uh, the state's rooms, um, completely disobeying uh, social distancing laws and brandoning their, um, their military-like weapons, um, holding placards demanding liberty as though it is all about them. But it hasn't always been that way. Robert Bella, in his bestseller, Habits of the Heart, reminds us that American society was built not just on a rugged individualism, not just on the rights of the individual, but also on the claim that community makes on us. The individual's obligation, commitment to something greater than himself or herself. But in our self-actualizing society, where it is all about my rights, we have lost that balance. So today, some of our ancestors in this country probably look at some of our actions these days with a sense of shame and disgrace. We are genuinely shocked today when someone comes along, be they younger or older, and makes a claim on our lives like parents who have real opinions about their children's behavior, or like children who actually hold their parents accountable for what they do or don't do, say, with the environment. I really don't understand parents who say things like, you know, we just want little Timmy to make his own mind up about religion, so we're not going to take him to church. 
as though little Timmy has any chance at all about knowing what church or faith or worship or the Bible are about if he's never been exposed to them. On the other hand, I understand very well the child who says to daddy, why don't we go to church on Sunday like Billy's parents do? Don't we believe in God? We're genuinely shocked today when someone, be it an individual or a community, makes a claim on our lives. Because you see, we've defined freedom as the fewest number of human attachments. Of course, such a definition of freedom makes things like marriage or family or church or community incomprehensible. After all, why would anybody want to limit his or her options by becoming unnecessarily tied down? I'm thinking of a movie that I saw years ago. It must have hit me at a a time when I really needed to hear it. It was called Nothing in Common. Tom Hanks plays the part of a young advertising executive. Young, so you realize how long ago this was. Um, And this young executive is single-handedly making his way up the ladder. Big accounts, big money. He is on his way. But then, as the story unfolds, um, his parents, he is the only son, his parents decide that after all these years, they are going to get a divorce. And so, all of a sudden, one night, right in the middle of the night, he receives this phone call. He has to get on his clothes. He he drives halfway across town to a bar where he finds his mother standing there barefoot, shooting baskets at one of these arcade games, um, very loose, but very much in need of somebody to talk to because she has just had her first date and she doesn't know how to handle it. Not long after that, he discovers that his father, whom he's never had a really good relationship with, he's angry with his father for mistreating his mother all of those years, but his father develops an advanced illness. He needs to have surgery. And so Hanks has to leave yet another big presentation because he is the only one that can take his father to the hospital. And the night before surgery, uh, Hanks is just getting ready to leave his father's room for the night when his father, love very much present in the room but very difficult to express, as it so often is between a father and a son or between men in general, The father reaches out his arm awkwardly and takes his son's hand. Several days later, the surgery now complete, the son is wheeling his father down the hospital corridor. He's getting ready to take him home. And his father, without ever looking at him, says, I never thought I would be able to depend on you. And a smile of maturity comes across the son's face. You see, the movie, like our story this morning, suggests that parents 
and family and children and even in-laws are an invitation to expose ourselves, to become vulnerable to another human being, to link our future to some prospect greater than ourselves. To be in a family is always to venture forth, like Ruth, like Naomi, into uncharted territory where there are no guarantees, only the confidence that the future, even the worst of futures, is a lot more bearable when you have somebody to bear it with. Well, we don't have time to go into the rest of the story this morning, uh, but I can tell you that right after Ruth and Naomi got to Bethlehem, Naomi immediately got busy trying to find Ruth a husband. And well, he wasn't much of a husband, this Boaz, but he did the job. Um, He's too old for me, says Ruth. Ah, old men are good in marriage, says Naomi. Besides, he's the only man you've got. This Naomi, she's been around the block before. She says to Ruth, you get over to that threshing floor. And sure enough, Ruth eventually bears a son there in Bethlehem. Ruth, single woman, vulnerable, seemingly at a dead end in her life. She had this child up in Bethlehem. And there are people who say that this story is also a parable because the child of Ruth was named Obed. And Obed became the father of Jesse. Jesse, who you remember, was the father of King David. And eventually, David became the father of Joseph. Joseph the carpenter, Joseph and Mary also had a son up there in Bethlehem. You see, Ruth, a foreign Moabite woman, an illegal immigrant, somehow through the strange twistings and turnings of God's providence becomes the means of salvation for Israel and for you and for me. It's a family story, but not just any family. It's a story about the human family and how God can use ordinary families like yours and mine in extraordinary ways because God always saves through ordinary people, people like Ruth and Naomi, people like you and me. Amen.